We're going to discuss tonight a question that has seen a great deal of attention over the past two centuries, and that is because the situation has become increasingly common over the last two centuries, and that is the question of the halachic perspective on Jews who are not committed to full observance of the mitzvahs, Jews who are not gener- who do not generally observe the mitzvahs. Of course, technically, none of us observe all the mitzvahs fully, but in a general sense, someone we would call observant, orthodox, from, we can discuss the exact details, maybe as it comes up, but the question of what to do, <coughs> how halacha views the Jews who are not, uh, not fully observant, not observant at all. Now, obviously, there have always been times in history, throughout history, not all Jews were fully observant, and not just on a personal level, there were entire heterodox movements. That, uh, uh, there, were, there, were, there, were large, there were large factions of Jews who were not observant. This is not a modern situation. The, in the time of the Talmud, we had the Tzedukim and Baitusim, the Sadducees and the Boatusians, who were, uh, I'm not sure you pronounce that last one in English, who were not, uh, did not keep the Torah as per Aramisara. In the time of the Gaonim, the medieval period, down through the Rishonim, there were the Karaites. The Karaites, uh, even in the time of the Achronim, even today, there are still some Karaites left. There are a tiny, insignificant uh, fraction of Judaism today, but for, for almost a thousand years, they were a powerful and influential faction of the Jewish community. In the time of the Gaonim, more than a thousand years ago, in the time of the Rishonim, Rambam and Ibn Ezra, as we'll see in the time of the early Achronim, 16th century in Turkey, they were a very significant part of the community. And as we'll see briefly, the questions of, of, of what halacha, how halacha looks at Jews who consider themselves Jews, who practice what they consider to be the right form of Judaism, but which is unfortunately the wrong form of Judaism, this is something that was first discussed, it was already discussed a little bit in, the, in Talmudic times, it was first discussed heavily from, in, in a more modern way in the times, in the, in the Rishonim, and primarily in the 16th century, regarding the Karaites. In the last two centuries, the issue has become, of course, relevant with the non-Orthodox, what we call the, the non-Orthodox uh, streams of Judaism, Reform, Conservative, Unaffiliated, and so on. Jews who no longer affiliate Orthodox, what is the, what is the halachic perspective toward these Jews? Now again, there are obviously Talmudic sources, there are obviously precedents, In Rambam has a number of comments about the Karaites in his time, but the the most uh, the, the 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 most modern type discussion the modern discussion really begins about 500 years ago in the discussions about the Karaites in uh, in the early modern period and then the mod- the really modern discussion begins 150 200 years ago as the reform movement and assimilation emancipation began making major inroads into the Jewish community that was when that was when the modern discussion took place. So I want to focus tonight on two or three tshuvas. One is a very, very famous one by Rabbi Yaakov Etlinger, the author of the Binyan Sion. As my father always points out, he was one of the first uh, modern European rabbis who had a university degree. degree. He was quite traditional in many ways, but, but he was also uh, educated and somewhat worldly. The other tshuvas I want to consider, the two other ones I want to consider, are by an even more early modern Orthodox figure, and that is Rabbi David Zvi Hoffman. David Zvi Hoffman was another great German posek uh, 50 years or so after the Binyan Zion, the author of the Malamid Lahoil. 
he was university educated as well. He was uh, he did academic research. He was famous as the head of the. He was one of the leaders of, of Orthodox Jewry at the time. He was passionately committed to Orthodoxy. He fought the reform tooth and nail. But nevertheless, he was also a, a very modern thinker in many ways. His chuvas often, often display a kind of moderation, a kind of scientific and cultural sophistication, and a general understanding of the conditions that he was facing in modern assimilated Germany. Both these chuvas, all three of these chuvas, two of them, Lamed Lahoel, and one of the Binyan have strong leniencies, strong degrees of tolerance toward modern non-Orthodox Jews. There are, of course, other perspectives, which perhaps we'll discuss in a future week. But tonight, we're going to focus on these three chuvas, one of the Binyan and two of the Melamed Laho. So, the Binyan chuva is extremely famous. It is, it is quoted as the basis for much of the modern discussion, much of the more tolerant approach, much of the more tolerant approaches taken by modern poskim have their roots in the Binyan We'll take a look at his tshuva. It's noteworthy that on the, on the, the beginning of the tshuva, there's a big headline in big letters. It says, these are psakim shalom lahalacha lamaisa. The Binyan has a disclaimer. He doesn't intend this, this tshuva to be halacha lamaisa. Interesting thing to write, but that's what he writes. Chuvu was written in Cheshvan, Mar Cheshvan, of Chavtes uh, Mar Cheshvan, Tafresh Chavalaf. That's uh, just around this time of the year. In uh, this would have been this would have been 1860 or so. 1860, um, 1860 or so. So he uh, the end of 1860. He was asked the following question by his mechutan, his uh, his mechutan, a Rabbi Zuckerman. He said, the question originally had to do with wine. The question is, we know that when a non-Jew handles wine, if the wine, if the wine is not mavushal, the wine becomes yayinesech, or stam yainam, depending on what kind of non-Jew we're talking about. But then the non-Jew becomes, the, the wine becomes usher, certainly usher to drink. In some cases, it becomes usher bahana, usher to have any benefit. At the very least, we're, we're familiar with the halacha, the non-mavushal wine cannot be handled by a non-Jew. That's why when you have wine that's going to be handled and accessed by non-Jews at a wedding or at a convention where there are non-Jewish waitstaff, you have to make sure the wine is mavushal. This is a well-known halacha. The question is, what about non-religious Jews? What if a person has not common situation, non-religious relatives, non-religious friends, guests at his house, and he has wine on the table, and the wine is, uh, the wine is not mavushal? So, uh, what do you do? Is, is there a problem of... Is this, is this considered Yayanesech or Stam Yenam if a non-religious, non-observant Jew handles the wine? In my family, in my house, we, we used to have a joke when anybody at the table would express a radical theological idea, something controversial, something out of the, out of the currently accepted consensus and doctrine, Everyone would exclaim, oh no, take the wine off the table, you know, so-and-so is now a heretic, and the wine he touches is, uh, is, is Stam Yenam. So, that, that, so the halacha, of course, is that if a non-Jew touches wine, it becomes Aster, and the question here is, what about a Jew who's not observant? Yes? How about a, somebody who's becoming a ger? What about, Simcha wants to know, what about someone who's becoming a ger? What about someone who is enthusiastic and interested in Judaism and is working toward becoming a Jew, but is not yet a Jew? Also a good question. We're not going to discuss that question tonight, but that, 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 also, that also poses, in a, in, in a way, that that's almost the inverse of the question we're discussing tonight. 
We're discussing tonight someone who is technically Jewish by birth, but is not practicing, may not believe in the doctrines of Judaism. The, the Geras candidate might be the reverse. He, he, he is practicing much of Judaism. He believes in the doctrines of Judaism, but he's not yet formally a Jew. So in a certain sense, that's almost the opposite question. It's a good question, but we're not going to discuss that this evening. So the question that was posed to the Binyan Sion, Rabbi Yaakov Etzlinger, by his Mechutin was that his Mechutin held that he, he, he considered it usur if a Yisrael who's Mechal Shabbos before Hesia. Chazal, Chazal talk about different types of non-observance. Again, we said earlier, we have to define what do we mean by non-observant. So one of the most egregious form of, forms of non-observance, short of Avodah short of someone who rejects the entire Torah, someone who does Avodah one of the worst things a Jew can do is to Mechal Shabbos, to desecrate the Shabbos, and not just desecrate the Shabbos, but to do so publicly. To, to do so in public without any fear or shame of rejecting such a fundamental, central mitzvah of Shabbos in, in public. That's, uh, that's considered an egregious rejection of the Torah. The Gemara says someone who's Mechal Shabbos before Hesia is in the same category as someone who worships about Dezara, someone who, who rejects the whole Torah. So Rav Zuckerman said someone who is Mechal Shabbos before Hesia he has the status of a mumar l'chala Torakula. He is someone who has rejected, someone who has rejected the, the entire Torah, and therefore his wine is considered yayanesach. He proved this, Rabbi Zuckerman, proved this from a tshuva of the Mabit. It's actually a tshuva of one of the Rishonim, Rabbeinu Shimshon, who, uh, an earlier authority who said that the post can bring, who said that a Karite, he was discussing the Karites, the Karaim, Bale Mikra, if a Karite handles wine, then the, the, wine, is, the wine is considered Yayanesa. Now, the Karites actually are an interesting case, because they actually kept Shabbos. And they, they actually believed in Shabbos, and they kept Shabbos. Rabbeinu Shimshon considered them Mechale Shabbos, because he said what they don't keep is Yom Tov. They, they keep Yom Tov also, but what they don't keep about Yom Tov is we know, of course, that the Karites had a, have, still have today, a famously misguided interpretation of the, of, the, of the date of Shavuos. The Torah says you count seven weeks in Machras Shabbos. We count the seven weeks from the second day of Pesach. They count from Sunday. They count always from a Sunday, the, 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 the Sunday after the first day of Pesach. So they have Shavuos typically later than we do, a few days later. And therefore the Karaites who don't keep Shavuos on the day that we keep Shavuos, that is considered Chilol HaMoados, Chilol of Yom Tov, and Rabbeinu Shimshon said that his tshuva was quoted by the achronim of the, of the 16th century. And his tshuva said, we consider that chil hamoados, which is tantamount to chil Shabbos. Therefore, the Karaites are considered mechal Shabbos. And, uh, and therefore, if they touch wine, the wine is, the wine is puzzle. Furthermore, the, there, there was a major, major tshuva of the, of the Radvaz, Radbaz was one of the great 16th century Sephardic poskim in Egypt. So Radbaz's tshuva is one of the longest, if not the longest tshuva I've ever seen. It is about uh, 15 pages, 16 pages, uh, maybe not the longest, but it's right up there, certainly for a 16th century tshuva. He has a lengthy uh, disquisition on the Karaites, which he considers them practically goyim. He quotes his Rabbeinu Shimshon's tshuva, and he points out, besides Chel Yom Tov, they're also Mechal Shabbos, at least Malachis Drabanan, that's certainly Machal, because they don't accept you know, the Mishnah Brewer, they don't accept the Shulchan Aruch, and they don't accept the Talmud, and even Malachis Minatara, some of them come from Drushas, and the, the Karaites were, were, were very literalist, they, they tended to follow things that it says in the Torah, 
Those things, they were even more strict than we were. They famously would not have any fire burning in their homes throughout Shabbos because they said, Lo Sivaro Eish means do not have any fire burning in your house. On the other hand, the other Lamatas Malachas, the other 38 Malachas, which are not explicit in the Torah, they would very likely not keep. So, the, so, so therefore, again, they're considered Machale Shabbos. So this school of thought, Rebbeinu Shimshon and the Radvaz, they said, and the Shach seems to follow them in the context of, in the context of, uh, of Yayin Esach, they say that they are considered Machale Shabbos before Hesia. They, they, they do this without, uh, without fear. They do their Chil Shabbos. And therefore, Rabbi Zuckerman said, that following the Rabbeinu Shimshon, the Radvaz, the, the Shach, we should consider wine that was we consider wine that was touched by a karite to be considered Yayin Esach, and therefore the same thing would apply to wine that was touched by a non-observant European Jew of the 19th century. However, Rabbi Tukerman notes there are, there are those who disagreed. The Radvaz spent most of his tshuva, much of his tshuva, debating other authorities who were more lenient, another other rabbis who were more lenient. So what's the halacha? He asked his mechutan, Rabbi Etlinger, what is the what is the what is the halacha? How should we treat wine that was handled by a non-Jew? Incidentally, mechutan is one of those words. I'd love to be able to translate it easily in uh, into English. A mechutan is someone who two people whose children have married each other. The the, the parent the parents the fathers of the of the chasan and kala stand in the relationship of mechutanim. I don't know if there's any good English, English word to express that in one word. But anyway, so that was the question posed to Rav Etlinger. What is the, what is the status of wine handled by modern, Europe, modern European Jews who are not observed? Says Rav Etlinger, in principle, you are correct. Someone who's Michal Shabbos, before Hesia, in public, is considered a mumar l'chala kula, He's like an Ovid Kochavim. He's considered someone who is completely non-observant, who rejects the whole Torah as if he worships idols. Even, he says, even those who were lenient about the Karaim, the Marshal, there were posts who were lenient about the Karaites. So he says, yeah, because the Karaites, after all, they kept Shabbos. They, they just didn't keep, they didn't keep Yom Tov. Yom Tov is not as serious as Shabbos. Even though we say all of them, are, all the Yom Tov are Zecher Lamaseh Bereshis, but Shabbos, I guess, is especially Zecher Lamaseh Bereshis. Shabbos is fundamentally all about creation. Shabbos is especially serious. So the, the Mekilim of the Kar- about the Karite said that not keeping Yontif is bad, but it's not so bad. Not keeping Shabbos is worse, and the Karites generally kept Shabbos. Again, as we noted, the Radvaz points out they don't really keep Shabbos in a satisfactory way either. But, okay, putting that aside for the moment. So the Karites weren't really Mechal Shabbos. Says the Rav Etlinger, someone who is a Mechal Shabbos Mamish, someone who drives his car on Shabbos, someone who uh, smokes on Shabbos, someone who completely is Mechal Shabbos. He is a Mumar Lechal Torah. Maybe all Postkim would agree that such a person is considered... Uh... Did smoke on Shabbos? I'm sorry? Did somebody smoke on Shabbos? What about smoking on Shabbos? You say somebody smoke on Shabbos, that's a Mechal on Shabbos? Yes, uh, smoking on Shabbos would, 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 as we'll see, that that's actually one of the examples given later by... By uh, Rav David Hoffman, smoking on Shabbos is something that would be considered Chil uh, Shabbos, I believe. Yes, it's a form of lighting fires, igniting fires. There might be some ways to do it that it wouldn't be Chil Shabbos, but uh, classic smoking—you take a match, you light a cigarette, and you uh, inhale and burn through the cigarette. Uh, smoking on Shabbos would be considered, I believe, a form of Chil uh, Shabbos. So. 
Rabbi Esslinger then proposes a possible leniency. He shoots it down, but he proposes a possible leniency. He says, when we talk about the Gzeira of Stam Yenam, Stam Yenam, we don't know it was poured for Avodah Zarah, so Stam Yenam is Asr Midrabanan. It's not entirely clear what the reason is. Uh, in, in some places, the, the implication is it's Asr because we suspect maybe he poured it for Avodah Zarah. In other places, though, the Gemara says, the Isr is Mishum Benoseyam. It was a it was a barrier put in place against assimilation, against intermarriage, against the, against the possibility if a Jew fraternizes with non-Jews, he may get too close and he may eventually end up marrying a non-Jewish woman. That's one of the reasons the Gemara gives for the Isser of Stam Yenam. So, says Ravetlinger, if that's the Isser, intermarriage, there's no Isser of intermarriage with respect to non-observant Jews that are fully Jews, so then maybe there's no Isser of Stam Yenam because there's no Isser of intermarriage. Says the Binyan Sion, maybe that's plausible, but it's not actually correct. Because if so, it would follow. Even someone who actually worships idols, even as long as he's a Jew, a Jew who actually worships idols, we should say that his wine is not, is not Asr because he's, uh, he's a Jew, so there's no Gzeira of intermarriage. And we know that's not the halacha. That, that's definitely not the halacha. So you have to say, he says, that once Chazal made a Gzeira, once Chazal made a gzera about uh, Stam Yenam, even if in a certain case the reason might not apply because intermarriage doesn't apply, nevertheless, both with regard to Amumar Lava Dezara as well as with regard to someone who's Michal Shabbos, the Isra of Stam Yenam would apply despite the fact that the Isra of intermarriage does not apply. Incidentally, this is actually a, a subject of major dispute when it comes to things like Bishalakum, Bishalakum and uh, Pasakum. If a, if, if a non-observant, so the halacha is, a, if a non-Jew cooks food, even if it's 100% kosher, someone supervises him, the food is 100% non-kosher. Because even if the ingredients are kosher, if a non-Jew cooks it, it is considered bishalakum. That's an Yes? Simcha wants to know how these halachas would apply to Chal of Yisrael and Chal of Stam. So Chal of Yisrael and Chal of Stam is primarily about adulteration of the milk with non-kosher ingredients, non-kosher milk. And presumably, it's uh, that, that has to do with the factual question of whether there's adulteration. But bishalakum is primarily about intermarriage. Bishalakum is not primarily because of kashrus. We supervise all kinds of foods that non-Jews produce, and that's fine. But nevertheless, if the non-Jew does the actual cooking, that's bishalakum and it's aser. There's a related issue of pasakum. Pasakum is much more lenient. Most people are habitually lenient on pasakum, except for seris mechuva and Shabbos and Yom Tov. But Bishalakim is 100% Usr, and the reason given is intermarriage. So the question actually arises, so what if a, uh, what about, does Bishalakim apply to a non-observant Jew? If a non-observant Jew cooks food, is that Bishalakim? So that's a major question, and one of the main arguments for leniency, we're not going to get into that tonight, but one of the main arguments for leniency is because, again, Bishalakim is only because of, only Usr because of intermarriage. There's no answer of intermarriage to a non-observant Jew. So at least in the context of of Yainesech, of Stam Yenam, Rav Atlinger shoots this down because he says it is established halacha that the, the laws of Stam Yenam apply to a to to, to a mumar lavadizara, and therefore they apply. He concludes to a mumar of Chil Shabbos as well. A mumar is someone who consistently and in, in principle rejects one or more mitzvahs. There are different kinds of mumar, but a mumar of Chil Shabbos, of someone who rejects Shabbos, just like someone who rejects lavadizara even though there is no prohibition of intermarriage, nevertheless, the prohibition of Stamyenam still applies. So that is the... Rabbi, isn't this a moot point with the Karaites, since they prohibit marriage outside of Karaism? Ah. They prohibit 
Interesting. So, interesting. So, so, so Jason is Jason is noting that the Karaites anyway have their own intermarriage rules. So, they, so a, Kara, a Karaite, an, an observant Karaite, so to speak, wouldn't uh, wouldn't want to marry us. Yes. Yeah, so I, I, I don't know. I don't know historically what the attitudes have been. The in, in the 16th century, I do know that this was a this was a major a major point of contention. The a, a good a good chunk of the tshuva of the Radvaz deals with can one marry a Karite woman. He deals with all kinds of questions. How do you trust her kasheris? What about going to the what about Taras and Mishpacha? He deals with a lot of these questions. I don't know if maybe Karaites in general wouldn't marry, but there were some who they didn't have complete social control. I, I, maybe attitudes evolved. Yes, yeah, so I don't know. I, I certainly don't know what the current uh, situation is. But uh, but yes. So, so, so sorry. So Jason is noting if we're, if we're really not worried about intermarriage to the Karaites because it was it's not socially acceptable. That might be another reason possibly for uh, for leniency with regard to Karaites in particular. You know, we, we can argue that, but we're primarily interested here. In the, the, obviously, the, the thing of most, the question of most concern to us is modern non-observant Jews, who certainly have no taboo against uh, marrying Jews in general. So the question remains: uh, Do we have to worry about these xeras of Bishalakum and Stamienum, which were which were attempted to, which were which were instituted as barriers to assimilation? So the Rav Eslinger says, at least with regard to Stamienum, the answer is yes, we do. Despite the fact that there's no Isser in marrying, there's no Isser in marrying a non-religious person, assuming you can get around all the questions of trust and kashrus and observance and so on. Nevertheless, the Isser of Stamienum still applies, he says. And this is the first half of his tshuva. He agrees in principle to his Mechuta and Rav Zuckerman that a modern Europe, that, that, that a non a, someone who is who's so not observant that he rejects Shabbos, that he doesn't keep Shabbos, his wine would be Usser as Stamienum. However, and the second half of his tshuva is, uh, is, is the really famous part. He says, Ad adin. Heretofore, we have discussed the Ikra Din, the abstract category of a Machal Shabbos before Hesya, what would the status of his wine be? Answer, Aser. However, says the Binyan Sion, Leposhe Yisrael Shabbos those Jews who are sinners of our time, modern European non-observant Jews, lo yadana ma'odin bahem. Not sure how to categorize them, he says. Because we have to accept the reality, he says. This, this plague of Tsaras has spread so widely, the, the, the plague of assimilation and rejection of observance, until most of them, most Jews, think Hill Shabbos is okay. Hill Shabbos has become widely acceptable. Maybe, he says, they have the status of Omer Mutter. If someone does an Avera because he mistakenly thinks it's Mutter, that's not Mazid. That, that, that's Karavl Mazid. You should learn, you should know better. But you're not an outright mazid. You just don't understand that it's really Asr, he says. Some people, he says, they daven Tfilah Shabbos. They go to shul, or they daven at home, whatever they do. They make Kiddush. And then they go to Machal Shabbos. Daraisa, Drabanan. So why is Machal Shabbos so bad, he says? Because he's rejecting Riyas Olam, Rejecting the Creator. He's Moda. He davens. He says, Ataki Dashta. He says, Mikai Shabbos. He makes Kiddush. This person is accepting that such a thing as Shabbos. So he's making at least two points so far. First of all, he's saying he's not totally amazed because he honestly thinks that Chil Shabbos is not really something he has to do. He thinks it's old-fashioned, the, the Torah evolves, it's a, it's, it's a primitive custom, today we do things differently. And moreover, he, 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 he does accept Shabbos in some sense, he, he doesn't totally assimilate, he recognizes Shabbos. Furthermore, he says, B'nei asher kamu takteim, you know, the original ones who assimilated, who were raised observant and threw off the yoke of Torah, that's one thing he says, but the later generations, they never learned about Shabbos, they, 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 weren't, they weren't raised, they weren't raised with, a, with an orthodox lifestyle and education, they don't know anything about Shabbos, uh, the halakhas of Shabbos. 
There are those who said that the Tzedukim, the Rambam famously wrote about the Karaites of his time, who the Postkim sometimes called Tzedukim, the Rambam wrote about the Karaites of his time, we don't consider them of Deva Dezara, we don't consider them Mapikursim, because it's Masiva Sam Biadeim, the original Tzedukim, he says, the ones who abandoned observance and created a new religion, they are terrible Rishayim and heretics, he says, but, but their followers, who were raised in this misguided, uh, misbegotten ideology, misbegotten religion, he said it's not their fault, they're Latino Shanishpa. Finally, he uses those famous words, Tino Shanishpa. Tino Shanishpa, the evolution of Tino Shanishpa is a fascinating uh, history in the, in, in, in the evolution of halacha. The Gemara talks about the notion of Tino Shanishpa. Literally, the words mean Tino, a child, Shanishpa, who was captured as a, as a, as a young person, was raised by, by non Jews and wasn't taught about Torah and mitzvahs. So, literally, he was captured. Later, post came the Rambam and post came like the Binyan Sion made a dramatic, incredible evolution of that, uh, of that concept to mean he was socially nishpa. He wasn't captured. He was raised by loving parents with freedom, of, uh, you know, with, with freedom and, 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 and care and compassion. Nevertheless, he was deprived of the benefit of a proper Jewish education. He was raised with a different set of values and beliefs and, uh, and a very different religion. The Rambam called the Karaites Tinoksha Nishpa, the, the later generations of Karaites, says the Rav Etlinger, modern assimilated Jews, even if the original ones who were raised from and decided to throw off religion might be a question of Mechal Shabbos, even then he said there's basis for leniency, but certainly he says, their children, the future generations who were never raised in a religious home, who never went to a religious school, who never taught about the details of halacha and religion, he says, they have the status of Tinoch Shanishpa, and we would not give them the status of, of Rishayim, of Mumrim. He brings, the, he, brings the, he brings the Rambam, he brings the Mabit, who has this language in, uh, about the Karaites of his time, and so on. Many of uh, the Poshi Adar, he says, many of the non-religious, of the non-observant of our generation, are like the Karaites of the, are like the, Karaites of the, of the medieval and the early modern sources. Even though the Rein Shimshon, he says, regarding Karaites, said their wine is Yayanesach, he says, uh, it wasn't just because they technically violate Moed, which is like Shabbos. It was also because they, they, they reject the, the fundamentals of religion, they refuse to do a proper bris mila, they do some kind of mila, but they don't do priya, which is another chalik of, of, of mila, and they don't do gitan and kedushin, and the kids of mamzerim. So they, 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 their rejection of Judaism cuts much deeper, it's much more fundamental, it, it goes beyond a technical violation of Shabbos and Moed, they, they, they had a much more fundamental divergence from authentic Judaism, he says. And so again, it's another Sfar. So we previously said it's not, it's not the Karaites' fault, it's not, the, it's, not the, the modern, it's not the modern Poshim's fault. Now he has an additional Sfar that the, we're, we're even better because the, even though these people work on Shabbos or smoke on Shabbos, but what they do is much less of a thoroughgoing rejection of the norms of Judaism he says in his time, at least, they still did proper gittin v'kedushin. They, they were still married by, married according to orthodox ways and divorced by orthodox ways. They do a proper bris milah. They just don't keep all the, all the restrictions. They don't keep all the laws of Shabbos so well, all the laws of Kashrus maybe. But that's not, that's not as bad. Maybe we won't call them, uh, we won't give them the status of Goyim, he says. L'chein, his bottom line is as follows. Hamachmer l'achshiv negiyas yayin shalaposhim alalu one who is stringent to consider the wine of these sinners, the modern non-observant Jews, to consider the tamyenam tavo alabrach. The praiseworthy thing to do is to treat modern non-observant Jews to be machmer, at least in the context of yayin, 
treat them as they do have the status of Mechalei Shabbos and avoid their wine, if it's not Mavushal. However, he says, those who are Mechil, those who want to not treat non-observant Jews this way, there is basis for leniency, unless, he says, we understand that he fully understands the Halacha, what the Halacha demands of him, and he's may is pun of, he nevertheless says, I don't care, I'm going to do what I want, I don't care what the Torah says, and he does that in front of ten Jews, that's called a Barabim for Hesia, that's a Mumar, and, and his wine is us. Now, it's very important to understand in these discussions, when we talk about how Halacha views non, non-observant Jews, it's not, a, it's not a black and white, it's not a binary question. We have to ask how Halacha considers them, their wine, what Halacha considers counting them for a minion, which we'll get to soon. What's the status if they're Edim on, uh, on Gittin the Kedushin? Can you be Mechal Shabbos to treat them if they're, if, they, if they're in danger? All these questions have separate answers, which, which are not Tali Habaha. So it's important to remember the Benyantzion's question was a question about their wine. Can you handle the wine of... Can you, can you, can you, is it mutter to consume wine that was handled by modern 19th century non-observant European Jews? His answer was Pashtus Ritzasser, there is basis for some creative svaros for leniency, there's that they're not so bad, and that they don't really understand, and it's Amar Mutter, and it's Tino and they, they accept a lot of the fundamentals of Judaism. With all that, he says, the right thing to do, Tavol of Bracha, someone could be Machmer, someone should be Machmer, but those who are Mekil have basis for leniency, unless we know that he is a, uh, a principled, uh, in principle, rejects the laws of Shabbos. Again, not everything he says would apply to modern non-Jews, to, to modern non-observant Jews. For example, he says that they still practice Gitzim and Kedushin, and they, uh, and they do proper bris milas. That's becoming less and less the case. There still are certainly many non-observant Jews who, do, who, who, will, who will get a proper moel and who will uh, get, do Gitzim and Kedushin, but it's becoming less and less common, certainly. So, but on the whole, the, the argument of the Binyan Tzion largely carries over to modern, modern 20th, 21st century American non-observant Jews. And this Binyan Tzion is one of the most cited, most important sources for the, for the lenient view, for the view that many posts can take today, that we don't view, in many contexts, modern non-observant Jews as Mechal Shabbos. We view them as Tino Shanishpa, which is a much more lenient category. Again, we'll turn now to the Malamid Lahoel or David Hachman. Well, he, he's going to refer to the chuvas of the, the chuva of the Binyan Sion. He was a little bit later. The Rabbi Yaakov Etlinger, according to Wikipedia, was born in 1798 and died in 1871. The Rabbi Hachman was born in 1843, about 45 years later, and, uh, and he died in 1921, also about 50 years later. So he was about a half century after the after Rav Etzlinger. So he has two tshuvas I want to see tonight. His first one is about, is perhaps one of the most common questions we encounter about non-religious Jews, and that is counting them for a minion. His second tshuva is a little bit more of a, of a niche case. It involved a Kohen who was not observant, or was not totally observant, and was, was, uh, was not following the laws of Tumah. And the question is, can you give him an aliyah? Can you give him the aliyah of Kohen? So the first tshuva deals with a very common question. Can you count non-observant Jews toward a minion? This is something that's discussed by many, many postkim throughout the 20th century. The, there, are, there are a variety of different views on this. I don't know if we can say what the, what the common practice is. I definitely know there are some shuls that do count non-observant Jews to a minion. I don't know if that's universal. Typically, in places where that would be an issue, it's places where 
it's more of a shot and you need to do that if you want to have a minion. So, you know, if you're in uh, Lakewood or Williamsburg and you happen for some reason not to have a minion without, a, without a non-observant Jew, I don't know what they would do, but in places where much of your minion is non-observant Jews, obviously there's going to be a strong uh, impulse for leniency here. But this is what Mlamid um, Lahoel is one of the earlier posts to consider this question. He was asked that uh, there's a certain minion that has one or two Makale Shabbos before Hesia, not just in their work, that they opened their stores and worked on Shabbos, Kiim Gam Osim Mugmar. They do Mugmar, which is a Talmudic word that means incense, by which I assume he means probably smoking, but uh, they do not just uh, professional work on Shabbos, they do personal work as well. They don't even make Kiddush and Avdallah. So unlike the Binyansians, people who davened and made Kiddush and then went out to work, these people were even more assimilated. They did malacha in their business, in their personal affairs. They didn't do Kiddush and Abdullah. They were completely, uh, they weren't doing Shabbos at all. Says the Malamid Lahoel, the Premier Gadim says that we don't count a Mechal Shabbos Befresia for a minion. And that's what a number of posts can say as well, that we don't count Mechal Shabbos for a minion. Nevertheless, he says, there are some poskim who are more lenient. They say, that's only a mumar lahachis, again, a Talmudic concept, mumar lahachis, a mumar who, who's deliberately trying to uh, flout the Torah, who's doing it on principle. There are some people like that, that they were famous Israeli uh, anti-religious people who used to go be photographed on Yom Kippur on the beach eating ham sandwiches, and people who go out of their way to make a public statement, I don't observe Yom Kippur, I don't observe Shabbos. You know, there are some like that, but in general... It's uh, most, most non-religious Jews, they just don't want to be bothered. They, they, they just don't consider themselves bound. But that's not lahachis, he says. So there are some who are more lenient, but he rejects that. He says the Pashtas is, the Chil Shabbos renders you a mumar, renders you, uh, you forfeit some of your status of a Jew, even if it's not lahachis, as long as it's not, as long as it's not again, a complete shogig in Tinoch But even if it's not lahachis, he says, you would still be considered a Mechal Shabbos, and we should not count you for a minute. He brings uh, another leniency. He says that we, uh, today, you know, we can't enforce all the strictures of religion. We don't have as much power. Okay, so that means, he says, that in principle, we shouldn't count you for a minion. We don't always have the power to enforce this. It can cause machlokas, and we'll get in trouble sometimes, he says. Okay, but in principle, Rav Hoffman says, the halacha is, the basic halacha is, a machal Shabbos should not ideally be counted for a minion. But Bismanazeh, he says... The minig is to be mekel, for various reasons, for social reasons, he says, even in Hungary, certainly in Germany. Hungary tended to be much more, uh, that, that the, the, the firm community was much stronger, was much more militant in general. His own Rebbe, the Maram Sheik, was one of the great Hungarian uh, warriors against the reform. He was also, Rapopin himself was a warrior against reform, but the, the Hungarians were famous for their uh, scorched earth, uncompromising stance against assimilation and reform. And even there, he says, even the hardliners, he says, are make to count uh, non-observant Jews for a minion, he says. Certainly here in Ashkenaz, where we're a lot more uh, tolerant, a lot less uh, rigid about these things, the minna gets to do it, even though ideally the halacha would seem to be otherwise. Tells a couple of anecdotes, he says. He remembers, in his kahila, he says, a certain person who kept his store open on Shabbos had Avelis, and he, uh, he, said, he, and he said he wanted to daven for the Amut. And the Gabbai convinced him, he says, don't do that, you'll, you'll cause a scandal, people will, people will object, and you'll just create machlokas, it'll be an unpleasant situation, just, uh, just you know, for, for your own sake, don't, uh, don't do that. 
So the person then went to a different shul, and the gabbai in the other shul was a very firm person, he says, Ish chareid v'yari elokim, that gabbai let him daven for the Amun, without any objection. I says, I, Rav Hafman, I asked that gabbai, it's not la'alacha, la'alacha is mechalai Shabbos, uh, can't be part of a minion. Why are you letting him be, 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 the, be the chazan? He told me, that's the minog, that's the minog for a long time in our shul, that we don't stop Bechalei Shabbos, people whose businesses are open on Shabbos, we don't stop them from davening for the Amun. So, says Rav Hoffman, we know the Rabbanim in that community were, it was a distinguished community, distinguished Rabbanim, they never objected, they probably had reasons, he says, we may not fully understand the reasons, maybe it's because, maybe the reason is, he says, it's the Binyan Tzion again. Maybe they're selmich on the idea that modern assimilated Jews, modern non-observant Jews, are not really Rishayim, they just don't know any better, and then it's not really their fault, and so on. So maybe there's some on that. But the bottom line is, he says, that's the minhag. The minhag is that we, we are not as strict vis-a-vis non-observant Jews as the letter of the law would seem to require. He heard a similar ruling, he says, in the name of the Shalom Eshev, one of the Gedolei Hadar of that time, Rav Yosef Shal Nathanson. He says, people from America. People from America, America was a synonym for non-observance in those days. People from America are not puzzle because of the, their Chil Shabbos, he says. They're Latino Shanishpa, people who live in America, they don't understand, they, they don't know any better, America is not a place of, of Torah and observance, he says. So the Shalom Eshev said, people in America, you know, we, can't, we don't blame them for being not religious, it's just too bad when you live out there in America. So, he says, Rav Hoffman says, those who are lenient to count people for a minion, he has a kind of similar, kind of grudging, uh, similar attitude to, uh, to Rav, uh, Rav Etlinger. Rav Etlinger was talking about wine, he says, a machmer tavo bracha, but a mekel yeshal milismoch, Rav Hoffman says, after all is said and done, self tavra kol nishma, if you want to count non-observant Jews for a minion, yeshlal nashi yismoch, there is, you have some basis for doing so. It's, it, again, it's, it's not, you know, it, it's not the pashtas of the halacha. It requires some innovative and uh, debatable assumptions, he says, but it, there is some legitimacy for the position. However, he recommends, again, Rav Hoffman is by no means a radical. Rav Hoffman is one of the most... Uh, modern and moderate postkim you could possibly conceive of, he says. However, he says, one who is able to go to a different shul without blilahachlamish, very important, without insulting anybody, without uh, making a scene and humiliating people, he says, if someone can quietly find a different shul to daven in without hurting anybody's feelings, he says, pshita tov obviously, he says, the ideal thing is not to rely on these dubious heterim, he says, better to daven in a minion with people who are kosher, not with people who don't keep Shabbos. So that is the opinion of her notes. Yes? So this is, a good, this is a good question. Max is asking, so what should be our perspective toward a halacha where in principle the halacha points one way, but post can acknowledge A, the minhag, and B, the fact that the, the fact that there is some basis for leniency. There are many areas like that. There are many areas in, uh, in, in daily practice as well where the unbalance in a vacuum, if, 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 if you look at the sources, you look at the weight, uh, the weight of opinion, you would conclude that it's clearly better to be stringent, and yet the minute gets to be lenient. In many of these cases, we accept the leniency. In some of these cases, we, we decry the leniencies. 
And yeah, that, that, that is a, that's a fundamental feature of halacha. It's, it's an art, not a science. It's, it's difficult to give rigid rules for uh, how much we defer to the minhag and how much we defer. So again, Rav Hoffman, as, a, as an outstanding posik, he felt the minhag in his time was, was strong enough, since the minhag was in serious shuls with serious rabbanim, who clearly condoned it, he felt, even though, the, even though on paper the heter is not strong, he felt that it was strong enough that it is yeshlam ilismach. And a person ideally should do better. A person who has, who has a choice should, uh, should do better. Now, obviously, if, 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 it's, if the halacha, it's mutter, and it's just miyos tov, it's just ideally you should do better, obviously you can weigh that against other factors. If you think that, uh, that again, certainly if it will cause machlokas, he says, if it will if, if insult people, you don't do that, he implies. And, and if, if you have other reasons for davening in the shul, if you feel you can bring, bring people closer to religion, maybe that would be a good reason if it's not strictly a chiyuv, then you have to weigh the totality of factors. But that is often how halacha works. Halacha, we have all kinds of minhagim that, uh, that are a little bit dubious on paper, and some of them poskim recommend that a person should, should be more stringent. Some poskim accept. We can talk about things like yashan, eating chadash eating or yashan. We can talk about using modern erevin. We can talk about uh, relying on certain eterim for bishalakum that uh, people use today. There are all kinds of questions. We can talk about things like not eating in the sukkah and Shmini Atzeres, or even not duchening every day. We've, all these things we've spoken about in the past, all these things that involve minhagim that uh, would not seem to hold up against a neutral, objective analysis of the sources. But the minhag is to be lenient, either, either because the pressure was so great that uh, halacha allows us to rely on lenient views, or because, for other reasons, halacha developed. So yeah, it's, it's a very good question. and There's no easy answer to explain how halacha decides in various cases to rely on certain views and why in other cases halacha says that we should be stricter. But yes, so in these cases, the, that, that, that's the skill of a great posik. In these cases, Rav Hoffman in his case and Rav Etlinger earlier in his case, both of them felt that even that, um, they, they both took very similar positions. That on the one hand, on paper, the halacha would seem to be stringent. On the other hand, it, uh, the, 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 this is such a widespread issue and there is some basis for leniency. They both felt there's basis for leniency, even though they, they both imply that ideally, if one could, all else being equal, ideally one should be a little more strict. Um, Rav Hoffman has one other Tzvar Lahakel. He says a very ingenious argument, which is made by other poskim as well, that in order to be considered a Mechal Shabbos, who, who's considered like, a, like completely non-observant anymore, it has to be Befarhesia. It has to be in front of ten people. So he says, um, he says that, that the issue is that when you do something Befarhesia, you're making a statement that I really don't care. I'm not even ashamed. I don't have any, I don't have any qualms about this. I do it in public without any, any fear of, uh, without any embarrassment. In some shuls, for example, people would drive to shul, but they would at least park a block away. They would walk to shul. And some pe- people, you know, that, that shows, again, that you're not totally comfortable with what you're doing, that, uh, that you respect the fact that there's, uh, that there's uh, many sources of earlier communities testify that this was done, that this was a custom people had. So, so things like that may not be before So depending on what you do. So Rav Hoffman has a very ingenious argument. He says... Even if you do it before Hesia, it doesn't have the status of Hesia because since so many people don't keep, since Chil Shabbos is so widespread as being normal, it's been normalized, he says, it's been unproblematized. So a person who's Mechal Shabbos is not saying, I'm Parish from Klal Yisrael. I do things that Jews in good standing don't do. On the contrary, I do what most Jews do. I'm a regular good Jew. 
except the, the real fanatics who, 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 still, who still keep Shabbos like in the Middle Ages. But he looks at himself, I'm normal, I do what everyone else does, he says. So that may not give you the din of a Michal Shabbos for Hesia. The way other posts can put it, the way us, uh, some posts can put it, I believe, slightly differently. They say, in order to be Michal Shabbos, it has to be with Neasarim and Yisrael. It has to be in front of ten Jews of good standing. But if the Jews are not of good standing, because they don't keep Shabbos, the, that's not Pafrasia. But the way the Rav Hoffman puts it, the issue is, you have to be parishat and Miklal Yisrael, you have to show that you flout, you brazenly flout the norms of the, Jew, of the Jewish people, he says. Most people don't keep Shabbos, he says. Those who do keep Shabbos are considered the, the fanatics and the prushim who move dalim. The poshim are the normal ones, he says. So once again, we can argue that Hill Shabbos today, again, this is not a very strong svar. He just says it as a sniff lahakel. He still says that it's better not to rely on this. But uh, at the end of the day, this is one more creative argument to be lenient. Chil Shabbos doesn't have the same meaning that it once had. It used to mean, besides, again, the theological component that I don't believe in creation, Chil Shabbos once meant I'm not part of the Jewish people. Jews keep Shabbos. I do what I want. I'm a citizen of the world. I'm not, I'm not a Jew. Today, that's not what it means. Today, a person considers himself a perfectly good Jew, a normal Jew, a Jew who's holech b'derech kalaret. Most Jews don't keep Shabbos. Why should I be any, be- why should I be any different than what most Jews do? So that's another svara to say that Chil Shabbos has lost some of its, uh, some of its, uh, the meaning that it once had. So I want to just consider briefly Rav Hoffman's second tshuva. It's uh, not totally related, but it also shows his kind of uh, somewhat moderate, but not entirely approach to these issues. The question here involved a Kohen who was attending medical school. When you attend medical school, you, do, you, you study anatomy. Most posts can have agreed that studying anatomy is uh, usher for a Kohen. Again, if you study anatomy by, by, obviously by Zoom, that's fine. If you study anatomy with being in the same room as a mace, without touching the mace, there's, there's more basis for leniency. But hands-on anatomy, where you, I've never been to medical school, I've never studied anatomy, I don't know what they actually do. But the assumption in Rav Hoffman, as well as in many other postkim, is that a medical education requires the Kohen to actually handle cadavers, and that is something that most postkim say is flatly usher. So the question posed to Rav Hoffman was, there was a certain Kohen who was going to medical school, and he was presumptively being metame lemes when he does dissection. The question was, can he be given an aliyah? Can he receive the aliyah of Kohen? So, says Rav Hoffman, the halacha is, a Kohen who, who flouts the, the laws of Tumah, who is metame to a mace, it is prohibited to give him the privileges, the prerogatives of Kahuna, until he accepts to, until he undertakes to reform. This is a dindra banan, midaraisa, you remain a Kohen no matter what you do, you, you, can't, uh, you can't abdicate, you, can't, you don't forfeit your Kahuna, you're always a Kohen, lakula and lachumra, you, you, you always retain all the privileges and all the obligations of a Kohen no matter what you do. Midra banan, they said that if someone is flagrantly being metame and refuses to, uh, to commit to reform, we do strip him of some of his privileges, we don't let him get Kedusha's Kahuna, including Elias, this is the consensus of the Akronim, that a Kohen who is, let's say, married to a divorcee or something, a Kohen who is not practicing the laws of Kahuna, cannot be given the Aliyah. Says the Yehuda Yaler, Yehuda Asad, it follows from that, a Kohen who goes to medical school should not be able to get an Aliyah. But he says, maybe you'll tell me he's a Shogig, because he thinks that because he's studying medicine, he'll be able to save people later, it's uh, that the, the means justify the end. We've discussed this in previous shiurim, that there are actually some postkim who have said that, but it is a 
tiny minority view that is almost universally rejected. The fact that the Kohen and the doctor can save lives down the road, that for various reasons that does not legitimize going to school. There are other doctors in the world, they don't need you specifically. It's too remote, the, the, the future benefit is too, uh, is too remote from now. Moshe Feinstein, among many others, vehemently rejected this idea. Rabbi Huda Saad did as well. He just says, the Kohen in his head, he has a limud tzchus. He's wrong, but he has a limud tzchus. Maybe he thinks that a non-Jew is not namatame. Uh, we paskin, of course, that it is. Maybe not Ohel, but certainly if Bamaga, if you touch the mace, we certainly, virtually all posts can agree that is Tame. But there is one sheet on the Rishonim that it's not. So that's enough to say this Kohen in his own head, he thinks he has a heter, so maybe he's a shogig. He's not mutter, but he's a shogig, because he thinks he's justified. So then Rav Hafen goes on a little bit of a tangent. He says, we can ask, are you mechuyiv to remonstrate with the Kohen? Mechuyiv to tell him, you may think that you have uh, justification, you may think that your life-saving mission justifies everything, you may think that, but you're wrong. He gets into a discussion of the famous sugya about mutav shiyu shogin while mazidin, Sometimes halacha accepts that discretion is the better part of valor, that there's no mitzvah to, 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 to yell into the wind often. If you know he won't listen to you, you don't have to say anything. He discusses that back and forth. We don't always say that rule. Things that are explicit halachas in the Torah, we don't, you don't say that, you have to protest. He goes back and forth on this point that uh, we can debate whether the Rav has to actually uh, admonish his, his congregant that you're, what you're doing is prohibited according to the Torah. Okay, so he, Rav Hoffman says, you, know, you didn't ask me that, you asked him about giving him an aliyah, so presumably we're assuming that this guy is not going to listen to you, he says. There's no chance he's going to listen. He says it would take a tremendous degree of Yerushalayim to give up his career and abandon school when you tell him it's usher. This guy is clearly not, uh, not so committed to, to Torah, even if he's a decent guy. So okay, so he says uh, we'll, we'll assume that you don't have to speak up because there's no real chance he's going to listen. So now the question is, okay, so we're not going to say anything to him. But can you give him the aliyah, he says. He says, uh, he says can you give him an aliyah? You might argue, Rav Hoffman says, he's a shogig. Rav Yudasad told us, because he has his delusions of why it's mutter, he's a shogig. Maybe if he's a shogig, there's no penalty. Maybe, maybe, just, maybe there's no penalty of, uh, of, uh, of forfeiting his prerogatives of kahuna. Says Rav Hoffman, not really correct. He says that's true if this was something that occurred in the past. If the Kohen did, did a one-time infraction and he's done with it, he went to a funeral and now he's finished, and now we have to say, did he do a terrible Avera or not? We can say, it's, it's an Avera, but he was a Shogig. He thought it was Mutter. Okay, then you can say that kind of argument, he says. However, we're dealing with a much more serious issue here, he says. It's not just a question of a Knas, of forfeiting his prerogatives of Kahuna, he says. If this Kohen, who is on an ongoing basis flouting the Halacha, and we are going to give him an Aliyah, he says, we are tacitly endorsing, we're giving Aaron Primator to his... Life choices. We're saying, we know this is what you're doing, and we don't mind. We're giving you an aliyah anyway, he says. So he says that, that he says, we cannot do. We, we're, we're supporting his idea that what he's doing is legitimate, he says. His shita so habaduya, his, his false and misguided uh, shita, he says. To give him an aliyah consists of, it's not a question of not protesting or stripping him of prerogatives. It implies that we, as the official community, as, as organized Jewry, are accepting and endorsing what he's doing. He says, therefore, no. We have to tell him he should not be called up for the... He should not be given an aliyah. Unless, he says, unless, he says you have to tell the Gabbai that he cannot call him up for an aliyah. Unless, you know, the Gabbai won't listen to you. Unless the Gabbai is not so uh, committed to the halach, he says. Then again, he, if he, he's not going to listen, you don't have to say anything because mutav shi yushogin. So if happens... Sorry? What, what is it? 
What is the practice with regard to Kohanim who are doctors? Presumably they all have had to have some uh, exposure to uh, some sort of dissection. Yes. So Kohanim who are doctors today, this is a, uh, a very controversial issue. There are a number of postkim throughout the 20th century who have come up with a variety of uh, different types of heterim. Rav Shlomo Gurren and Eretz Yisrael had, uh, had some heterim. Other postkim had heterim. M- many postkim, I would say most postkim, I don't have all the sources in my fingertips, spoken about this in the past. Many postkim, most postkim have said that a Kohen should not attend medical school. Of course, when we say shouldn't attend medical school, obviously, if the school can make accommodations, I've heard there are places in Israel where they, where, where they make, uh, they do uh, you know, virtual anatomy classes for, for, for Kohanim who don't want to do real anatomy. So obviously, it, uh, when I say a Kohen can't, can or can't attend medical school, that's a shortcut for can or can't attend medical school in a case where no accommodations are being made and he's studying anatomy the old-fashioned way by handling a cadaver with his hands. But there are some postings who allowed it, it is, I, my understanding is it's a minority view, and it is not widely held. The, I believe Rav Salavechik was uh, very much opposed to it. Rav Moshe Feinstein was very much opposed to it. Uh, most other major postkim were very much opposed to it. Um, so again, so it's a, a Kohen who follows rabbinic opinion and does it. Certainly if he has a reliable rabbinic opinion, then that's fine. He's allowed to follow his, his rabbinic authority. A Cohen who uh, just decides that, that he believes in some of the various uh, arguments proposed by, by Postkim, so he, at, at, the, at the least he might be called a shogig according to the, the, the Postkim. He thinks it's mutter. Um, other than that, I can't speak for specific cases. I, again, any individual Cohen, maybe you should be down like Hafschus that he reached some kind of accommodation with the school, or I don't know, or, 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 maybe, or maybe he's following uh, you know, some Postkim who said it was mutter. But the Rav Hoffman's position is. He doesn't. He can't conceive of any legitimate hatcher to do so. The most he can conceive of is that you'd be a shogig. However, he says since he's doing something wrong, we cannot uh, endorse that by giving him an aliyah. We have to say that uh, we have to not give him the aliyah. That's what he thinks the correct practice is. Now, Rav Hoffman is not discussing what is a, a ubiquitous question today, which is if someone doesn't keep Shabbos, can you give him an aliyah at all? Forget Cohen. Can you give him any aliyah? You have, you have the same issue over here. So first of all, we, we discussed Rav Hoffman's previous tshuva. It could be that he can't be the shliach tibur, he can't be counted as many. It could be he's not eligible for an aliyah b'chal because he's considered a, uh, he's considered a, uh, a mechal Shabbos and a, and a Russia and a mumer. Rav Hoffman's previous tshuva said there's basis for leniency. We could count him for a minion. Yeshal me lismoch to say that he's a, that he's a shogig, tinoch shenishpah, it's not really his fault. The question still is though, okay, so it's not his fault. But the question is, by giving him an aliyah, you have the issue of this tshuva. By giving him an aliyah, are we saying that we accept what you're doing, that we endorse what you're doing? So, maybe not. You know, you, I don't know what Rav Hoffman himself would say. You can argue that if you give somebody Kohen, you're saying we treat you as a Kohen in good standing. If you give him Ravi or Hamishi or Shlishi, I don't know if you're saying we consider your Chil Shabbos acceptable. Maybe, maybe that would be a problem. Maybe by giving him any aliyah, you're implying that you're one of us, you know, your, your Chil Shabbos doesn't bother us too much. And I'm not actually sure what the I'm not actually sure what the what the widespread practice is. And, and, and recently, there's been a lot of discussion about whether to give people to give people who are um, LGBTQ aliyahs in shul. And some people have said, "Well, why is it worse than mechalei Shabbos? We do give aliyahs to." Other people have said, "We do. We don't give mechale, We don't give we don't give aliyahs to mechalei Shabbos in my shul." I don't actually know what the what the common or dominant practice is across the United States 
do we give aliyahs to people on Mechal Shabbos? I do know of some shuls where they count uh, non-observant Jews for a minion and they do give them aliyahs as well. I don't know, again, I don't know if in a place like Lakewood, whether the, Williamsburg, whether they would allow someone who was a public Mechal Shabbos, uh, would they give him an aliyah or not? I don't know what the consensus is. Certainly there are posts on both sides. But, but Rav Hoffman is making a crucial point that even, even insofar as the person isn't in technical violation of, uh, of a halacha by giving him an aliyah or by counting for a minion, because we can say he's a Tinoch and a Shogig, and so on, there's one further issue you have to take into account, Rav Hoffman says, a very important issue. We have to make sure that we're not lending our imprimatur to what the person's doing. If, if, if by giving him an aliyah, that will be seen as we accept Chil Shabbos, we think it's not so bad, we, 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 we respect his lifestyle choices, that is a very serious issue. We can't do that. We can't be Maxik Yadav and Meseyeya to a person with a Shita Habaduya. So insofar, the, the print, how to apply it to the actual practical life in 21st century America is a good question. But in principle, at least, we have this concern that if by, if by giving him synagogue honors and so on, this will be seen as uh, supporting and endorsing and lending our imprimatur to a person whose lifestyle is a lifestyle of Avera, whether it's Chil Shabbos or something else, we have to, or, or Tuma for a Kohen or any other Avera, presumably, we have to think twice about uh, maybe this is not the right thing to do, maybe we should not be lending our imprimatur to something which is uh, wrong and against the Torah. So one thing that I've heard, I'm sorry. Yes. One thing that I've heard as a reason is you would assume, you might assume that the person is meant to Shuvah. If the person is in Shul, then presumably maybe he's in Shuvah and he is no longer going to be Michal Shabbos Parhetia or anything similar. I mean, that's an argument I've heard people use for why they give them Aliyah. That's an interesting idea. The, 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 the suggestion was that maybe Basher uh, Husham, maybe we say that when he's in Shul, people can change, people do Shuvah. There's a famous Gemara in Kedushin. The Gemara says, if you have someone who has the reputation of a Russia, we know he's a Russia, and he gives a woman Kedushin, and he says, he makes a Tanai. He says, I'm giving you Kedushin conditionally on the fact that I'm a Tzaddik. Now, we know that up till a half hour ago, he was a Russia. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, the Halacha is, Misafek at least, it is Kedushin, because we say he could have done Tshuva. Even if he hasn't done any uh, act, he hasn't you know, rolled in the snow, or he hasn't made a public uh, mea culpa, but tshuva doesn't require that. Mikra din, tshuva is belave. If a person decides, I, have, uh, I want to follow my better nature from now on, that's tshuva to a certain extent. So the kedushin is kedushin, at least misafik. So Hadas is saying a similar argument, I think, that uh, when he's in shul now, maybe he's, you know, he's, he's, he's been... Uh, He's been swept by a spirit of holiness, and he's decided that he will try to uh, follow the Torah more carefully. Um, yeah, I, I, so again, I'm, I'm not familiar. I didn't have time to prepare all the svaras of the poskim, I, so I, I don't know about that svara, but certainly that, that would be the kind of thing that it's within the limits of halacha. In practice, obviously, it involves a certain suspension of disbelief. You know, the, the guy's been driving to shul every, uh, every week for the last 10 years. He hasn't made any statement of uh, reform. You haven't even asked him if he's reformed himself. So it's a, it's a little bit of a stretch, but yeah, potentially I, can, I, I could conceive somebody making that argument. Yes. A couple of years ago, Steve was an aide at a wedding, and the rabbi had no idea who Steve was or the other aide. So he said to them right before the wedding, let's all think about things we've done wrong and how to do better in the future. Like he was trying right. to get them right. so, to show what that actually saying. So, 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 so that actually is a, is a minhag that some Rabbanim have. It's not, uh, it's not even necessarily con, uh, contingent on whether he knew your husband or not. There, there is actually a minhag some post can bring that the Edim, before a get, before Kedushin, should be Mahara Bachuva, because in case... Because the truth is, we, we should note that 
Edom is even more strict. Everything we've been saying tonight about uh, losing your privileges as a Jew, there the bar is pretty high. You have to be Michal Shabbos before Hesia, there the bar is relatively high. You have to be fairly non-observant before that kicks in. Edus, the rule is, the, the threshold is much lower. Even someone who does not Michal Shabbos and he's generally observant, even a single Avera can, in certain cases, if a person uh, is just seized by, uh, by, by a temptation to eat a cheeseburger, to eat uh, even just non-kosher meat, if he does that, that renders him pasaladus in some cases. So even if he wouldn't have a din of a Michal Shabbos, he would count for a minion, certainly, in such a case. So the, the, the threshold for Edus is, is, Edus is much stricter, and therefore there is such a custom that, uh, that, that's, that's some, that witnesses are asked. Again, most Rabbanim don't do that. I, I, don't, I don't think it's that common today, but there, there is such a custom discussed by the postkin. But yes, but, but, but that, that just goes, it, does, it does speak to what you said before, we do recognize, to at least a certain extent, the power of tshuva, even if it isn't accompanied by any kind of uh, major evidence of, uh, of a life-changing uh, transformation. But yes, tshuva, in principle, we recognize the power of tshuva to give you a new halachic status, even if it isn't accompanied by a uh, life-changing transformation. Thank you.